You're listening to The 21st Folio, a podcast about modern Shakespeare productions of stage and screen. The podcast is a subsidiary of The Seventh Row, an online publication dedicated to interdisciplinary film and theater criticism. You can find us on Twitter at Seventh Row with the number seven spelled out or online at seventh-row.com. That's S-E-V-E-N-T-H-Row.com. surrounded by like pretty awful people aside from Anne, everybody's kind of awful and just worried about their own skin and their own power and that seems to be downplayed in like every production i've ever seen where it's not just that richard is bad but like he's in a corrupt world but he's you know smarter than everyone and and you know it makes him a bit easier to like i think um the fact that he's surrounded by awful people and especially especially because they're not just awful but they're also specifically really awful to him unprovoked one of yeah i think that the mckellen production at least tries to do although it doesn't entirely succeed is to portray and like i'm assuming that contemporaneous audiences would have known this but is to portray the like huge tumult that came before edward like it was a war that split an entire country Mm -hmm. and so Everybody is so hugely relieved to finally not be at war again. But I think all of them understand how fragile that piece is, Mm -hmm. which is sort of why everybody in this play is worrying about them and theirs. Right, because they don't know how long this is going to last. Yeah, because they're like, this could blow up at any time. Right. Especially with, you know, when throughout this whole play, you don't have a stable ruler until Buckingham because Edward's sick and dying. Then you have an 11 year old in charge. And even Buckingham makes reference to that where he's like, uh, why, why do we want so little train to bring the prince in? It's like, well, we're kind of unbalanced here with a little kid. Probably not the best time. And then Richard's in charge, which I think is great, but others would apparently disagree. And then Richmond. And then you actually have an adult to be in charge for a while. And like, in fairness, the Richard I have yet to see, which I would love to see is the Richard the third. That's like, yeah, he's a megalomaniac and a murderer, but he's actually a good King. Yeah. Cause you don't, well, like we were saying before, you don't get to see him as a ruler. You get to see him as a backstage angler, but you don't get to see his tax policy, for example, or his ideas on infrastructure. You don't get to see that. You don't get to, and like the thing about Richard III and the thing about like, look, we can all talk about how this is historically a slander. And I think we all know that. But the other thing that the play itself downplays is that Richmond starts another civil war. Mm. Yeah. Like if everybody had just left Richard alone, there would not be another civil war that drives a rift through the entire country right after they just had another civil war. I right. love where you're. I love vilifying Richmond. Well, I'm right very, on board with you. I'm well, right behind you. Very much like the Scottish play, in the sense that as soon as he ascends to the throne, it's his all he does is 
you know, sit around wondering when he's going to get killed or who he should kill off. Well, that yeah, that's my favorite line in the whole play is, but shall we wear these? Oh, God, what is the line? Shall we wear these honors for a day or shall we whatever? But like, that's the moment, you know, when he's coming up the chain, everyone, ha- everyone who's in front of him has a target on their chest. Mm-hmm. And then he sits in the throne and he realizes the target is on him. Mm-hmm. And then he kind of goes through a little tough time there for a while. He's so smart in this that he instantly realizes I need to do everything I can to shore up my power, mm-hmm. which means I'm going to go and do exactly what Edward did when he married Elizabeth in that I'm going to marry the daughter of the opposing family. And that's mm-hmm. also kind of something that's played down in both productions, right? Elizabeth and Edward are portrayed to be deeply in love. Sure, they might be, but they also got married to stop a war. But, I mean, like like Macris, he doesn't really get anything about actual governing, whereas Claudius gets to actually be a diplomat and say, and show, actually, I may be kind of an okay leader. Yeah, okay, I kill people, but, and my brother, but. <laughs> That's one know, time. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I'm probably a better leader than, than Hamlet, and maybe I'm a right. better leader okay. than the other Hamlet, too. I think we need to have a debate. Can I get a Richmond Richard, like, stand up behind a podium debate? I'd like to see that before I really decide who I want to throw in on on this war. You know, I would simply note that that debate would be very difficult because Richard has, like, four lines in this play. Richmond. 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 Right. Sorry. Word. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's true. He has more. He has more than are depicted in either of the of these movies. But not a hell of a lot more. <laughs> yes. And it's mostly sort of, hello, I am a character kind of lines. Well, especially in the Olivier one. Although I did love that it was Jimmy McNulty from The Wire in the McKellen one as like a tiny, adorable little baby. He's like 25, <laughs> like looking so fresh faced. <laughs> he's it's younger like, than that Dominic West. Yeah. Yeah. He's so yeah. And this is his, I think this is his first movie, but it's like, oh, you're going to become an alcoholic cop in Baltimore in like five <laughs> years. This war had a real effect on you. This is really something. <laughs> You know, it's interesting. You were just talking about Richmond and how much of Richmond is cut out, and I think that ties into we were we on our on our talking point list talking about the Richard's end, um, how it wraps up. And I thought it was really weird in the Olivier. Like it's kind of important in the overall thrust of Richard the Third that Richmond kills him. Like Richard and Richmond meet in the field and they duel. And Richmond kills Richard and then has a monologue where he's like, this is over. This is over now. I'm going to be yeah. the king and everything's cool. But in Richard III, I mean, in, in the Olivier, he just gets stabbed. Like he gets the Julius Caesar treatment from like 50 people just stabbing him. And Richmond isn't even there. Like <laughs> what he's, you know, he squares up with Lord Stanley. And like yeah. I'm watching it. And like Stanley standing across this little like valley across from him. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. When's, when's Richmond going to show up? And then they just all stab him a bunch. And it's like, why? I, I, I just didn't get that choice at all. Well, part of it is a, like that's, you are entirely correct. That it's just a dumb choice. <laughs> but part of why they may have done it is because historically Richard III was stabbed 11 times by at least nine different people. Like that's what we know from his corpse. 
But did we know that at the time? Uh, maybe. We don't know whether we knew that at the time, right? But well, they didn't we find his body until like five years ago. Um, point. I don't know um, whether we knew that at the time. Unless this ties back to my previous idea that Olivier is a time traveler, which I forget was on this or on the pre-show. But we did no. talk about that. I like that theory better. <laughs> it was the pre-show. Okay, well, sorry, everyone. That's, you know, That's that, how that'll he be in was the dire- influenced by McKellen's film. <laughs> that'll be in the director's cut. You can hear my time-traveling Olivier theory. But yeah, I just, even, even if it is that, Richmond has to be one of the nine stabbers. He has yeah. to be there. He's like... Mathematically like, speaking, it, yeah. Right. I don't know. But yeah, that's a big, that's a big takeaway. And that Olivier Richmond was terrible. Just that page boy haircut and just wide-eyed, pie-faced, innocent, like, I will be a very good king. It's like, okay, I don't, I don't buy it. I don't buy this. Well, You're also, gonna... Richmond has to be a convincing military leader. Right. And he was not. Yeah. He was not at all. Like, I wouldn't trust him on my softball team, let alone to run a military. Like, I'm not buying it with that Richmond. Whereas Jimmy McNulty from The Wire, yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Just shooting guys on a abandoned construction site or whatever the final showdown happened on. Yeah, I, I buy it. <laughs> Alex and I have talked. La Liaison Dangereuse is like one of my favorite, my very favorite novels. Mm-hmm. And Don Mar did a recent production starring Dominic West as Valmont and got it totally wrong. Just missed. Yeah, like just, you know, swing and a miss, not even on the target. Like, <laughs> Janet McTeer uh, was amazing, though. She was amazing. She was phenomenal. The stage was just really not good. Anyway. That's unfortunate. Yeah. I'm fine. We're all fine. We're totally fine. <laughs> Not bitter at all. We're not on speaking terms right now, but eventually it will be fine. Um, anyway, I could talk about that book, but not Richard III, so we'll move That's on. That's a different podcast. Yeah, well, I don't think anybody who uh, listens to us loves Le Liaison Dangereuse the way I do, because very few people do, so. You might be right um, about that. <laughs> but what I was going to say and I think it's like the unspoken thing between all three of us that's wrong with the McKellen production is <laughs> my, horse, my horse the kingdom for a horse oh well okay yes <laughs> although I do appreciate the Olivier sure did kill a lot of horses to try to make that make sense I'm watching <laughs> like at least three horses died and possibly more and I'm watching all these and I literally said I was watching it by myself and out loud I said in my living room how many horses have to die to justify this line <laughs> like there is there it's 1955 so they may actually be killing these horses these horses may be dead I, I didn't see the, the caveat afterwards like no animals animals were harmed in the production of this film um yeah, no, it's not good in the in either. Partic- I mean, in the McKellen, it's particularly troubling. It's straight up wrong. Yeah, driving around in a Jeep. I also don't understand why he shot his gunner in the head. Like, the Jeep gets jammed, and the driver gets shot, and McKellen's like, ah, damn it. And the guy is over his shoulder shooting the machine gun, and then he's like, ah, forget it, and he just shoots him in the head, and it's like... That guy probably would have been better with that around. Yes. 
<laughs> I like how you raise your hand. Just just talk over me. It's fine. No, I try like you're too. You're very I'm polite. Both I'm problem with interrupting. Oh I'm God, did not do that. Oh God, I'm never going to be invited back. Then that's all I do. I'm sorry. I apologize across the board. <laughs> Almost Canadian, so close. I, <laughs> I'm I'm New England, so I just don't talk about feelings. But it's very close. Not until you've apologized for having your feet stepped on. Are you quite Canadian enough? <laughs> But you, uh, you, you raised your head about shooting the, uh, about shooting the gunner in the head. Oh no, it wasn't about oh, shooting before. Tyrell. That was an entirely inexplicable decision. I've oh, no. Was idea. that Tyrell? Yeah, it was. It was Tyrell. Oh, that's even sadder. Right. <laughs> oh. He's the one guy who's been like Richard's Batman throughout. Right. Yeah. I feel like Tyrell's like, oh come on, really, bro? All right, well, fine. But again, to state the blindingly obvious that all three of us know. But like for the record, for our audience, Richard is a military leader. When he says a horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse, he's meaning so I can go fight more, Mm -hmm. not so I can run away, which is what McKellen suggests. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Also, there are no horses involved. Like, is he talking? It's almost like Tim Allen in Tool Time where he's like more horsepower. Is that what you're talking about? Like horse, more horses. I don't get it. Didn't well, are all the guns in um, Romeo and Juliet, the Baz Luhrmann Romeo and Juliet, where they're constantly using guns and calling them daggers what, or swords. Right, yeah. where it zooms in and it says, like, dagger 45 on the gun. Yes, that's I know, right. It's, hard. it's one of those things that you have to, like, shoehorn in because you you sadly cannot do Richard III without a horse, a horse. Like, you need it there. But yep. then you're doing it in this, like, World War II, and it's like, well, look, we're not going to not do this World War II theme. But Should have done World think, War One, <laughs> right? You could still have horses, I guess, or you in know, World you can't, War One, yeah, right. I guess uh, you can't be like a jeep, a jeep, my kingdom for a jeep <laughs> or a tank. It doesn't really. I feel like you can skate that's, over some other things, but that one's not really going to fly. They should get a lot of sponsorship for doing that if they do that. <laughs> a Ford Taurus, a Ford Taurus, <laughs> my kingdom for a brand new Chevrolet, whatever. <laughs> yeah I did hate that they killed I was shockingly m- upset when Catesby got killed in the Olivier because I've never seen Catesby die before and when they stabbed him a bunch I was like Catesby no oh god they killed Catesby it's like there was a production of Hamlet in at Shakespeare in the Park I want to say five years ago where at the end they kill Horatio which is one of my favorite. Yes, I love this. It was Oscar Eustace's production of Hamlet at Shakespeare in the Park in New York. And uh, basically, you know, everyone's dead. Fortinbras comes in and he's like this cold, like almost Russian military leader. And um, Fortinbras like, what happened? And Horatio's like, oh, you know, this, that, and the other thing they all, you know, Horatio's monologue. And Fortinbras like, pick him up and take him and we'll hear the story of what befell here. And they're like, okay. And like Horatio's like crying and they pick him up. And then Fortinbras like, yeah, we're definitely going to hear this story. And then he turns around and shoots him in the head and blood goes all over the wall and they just drop Horatio. And then Fortinbras like, all right, we're in charge now. Uh, ever clear all this stuff out. And uh, we, we run this show. 
And it makes because why does Fortinbras care? Fortinbras doesn't care. He, he's the king of Denmark now. I love it. Just ice cold Fortinbras. But that's how I felt about Catesby just getting stabbed a bunch. I was like, oh, you killed Horatio, you bastards. Why would you do that? Okay. Are we are we done now with the end and how he dies? <laughs> yes. <laughs> we are not entirely done. Oh, okay. Because I always have more to say about the McKellen version. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, I realize, Kevin, that you have said that the ending of the McKellen version is like cheesier than cheesy. Yes. But I love it. Oh. <laughs> do you love do you love Richmond spiking the camera after he dies, being like, I won. Do you like when Jimmy McNulty looks directly into the camera like, I can do one out. I can do break the fourth wall, too. No, that I found annoying. Okay. <laughs> um, but there's like, I just really like, A, the fact that Richmond doesn't really kill Richard. Because Richmond is about to shoot him. But Richard is like, nope, I'm going to jump off into these flames instead. And then cackles all the way down. And like, it's like, that gorgeous image of A, I'm going out on my own terms and like, screw you, you didn't get to kill me. But it's just him literally falling into hell, I feel like is a little, it's the same thing as the Nazi symbolism where it's like, I, he's a bad guy, I get it. I don't need him dressed up like Hitler and falling into hell. I don't need that. But like, the point is that he goes smiling. Yeah, I guess that is actually really an optimistic view of that, I guess. Well, no, there's just something wonderful about McKellen's Richard, which is like, he's not even mustache twirling. He's just quite frank about like, I'm evil. That's how it's what I do. Yeah, I'll take my lumps. I'm going to hell. Okay. I do like that. I do like thinking about it like he's going out on his own because I forgot. Yeah, Richmond doesn't shoot him. He jumps. Yeah, Richmond tries to shoot him and he just falls backward. That's interesting. Take the shot. Huh. Okay, I like it a little better now. I still think it's a little over the top, but I do like it better now. <laughs> oh, it's so over the top. But like... <laughs> don't, don't be clear. <laughs> um, so we sort of touched on the prologue before, in which Kevin suggested that um, McKellen and Olivier just wanted the good lines from Henry VI. <laughs> <laughs> right, in that opening monologue, yeah. But I wanted to... <laughs> twist that a little bit and talk about the reason which I think might also be why it's in there which is how the hell do you make Richard III make sense to somebody who has not seen Henry VI and or was not born in Elizabethan times where you already know who all these people are which there are very few film goers who were so yes that's an important thing <laughs> what? what? don't worry about it vampires? <laughs> I mean Presumably Tom Hiddleston and Tilda Swinton. Well, Tilda Swinton anyway from uh, Only Lovers Left Alive. But Various Highlanders and such. Yes, they all get this crystal clear, but up for the rest of us. Yeah, as clear as is the summer's day. Anyway. <laughs> so I'm not yeah, appreciating my Salic Law joke. Fine. <laughs> I barely appreciate the Salic Law joke in Henry V. <laughs> Like, it goes on for way too long. I'm sorry, it just does. Dear William, we, we have, have some notes. We have notes. Uh, I think, well, it's it, it's interesting how different the two prologue, you know, pseudo-dumb shows approach this, right? That in the Olivier, it's like, 
here is some required reading before we enjoy the show. <laughs> and it's like calligraphy and it's very like cornets playing this little as you go through like the history of the crown, right? And then in the McKellen, basically a tank crashes through a wall and a guy gets shot in the head. So two very different takes um, to get us caught up. But yeah, I mean, this play is, in the grand scheme of things, is fed into by six hours, six to nine hours of other Shakespeare. And it's like, well, we got to cover this in like three seconds because we're about to start. And I thought the McKellen was much more effective in that. Um, And also what I appreciated actually most in the McKellen, where we start in the bunker of Henry VI and see them all get blown away, even though you don't really know who they are. And they don't really spend a lot of time explaining that that's Henry VI and that's Henry's son, Edward. It's just like, here are the enemy. Here are the, you know, here are the Lancasters, basically. Uh, but I do like that it shows Richard being basically the head of a SWAT team mm-hmm. because what gets lost a lot is that he's really good at war and like oh. he's a really good soldier. So for him to like rappel in and like kick down a door and, you know, so calm up a room is very appropriate with his gas mask on, mm-hmm. which you don't really like. I can't picture Olivier's Richard doing that, if that I'm makes not- sense. I think the other thing they do really well in the McKellen one is that afterwards they have that family portrait and they specifically tell you that it's the York family portrait Mm -hmm. um, and that they're celebrating the downfall of the Lancasters. And then Mm -hmm. even though you don't know who any of the people are specifically yet, it does let you know, okay, these guys are the ones in the family and it lets you know what's been, what's happened in a really efficient way without having to sort of give us lots of exposition. Right. You get the important parts before we before Richard starts killing all of them. You get the gist. <laughs> but is that I mean, one thing I'm wondering is, does this get done on stage? Because I don't know that I've ever I'm not sure if I was paying attention closely enough, but I'm not sure that I've ever seen that part ever added anything ever added on stage. And you're just left to go, what the hell is going on? Because, you know, it's mostly performed on its own, not with Henry the mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Well. I saw a production, the the public theater did a mobile unit production, which was like a very, the, the one that they tour to like prisons and homeless shelters and stuff. That was a very minimalist, tiny, uh, small production elements. And what they did, their only set piece was like a bed sheet, like a king size bed sheet that had the family tree written on it. And it was just laying on the ground, you know, it was done in the round. So you came in and the family tree was there. And then their only other set piece was a little bucket, like a, you know, a five gallon paint bucket. And as Richard would kill people, they'd strike out their names in red blood. So by the end of it, the family tree is all struck out except for Richard. So you like see he's killed everyone until he's the only name left on this sheet. Um, that's pretty smart because a lot of the time it's you have the program and you're looking in the program at the family tree and you're like okay so which ones are dead now and Mm -hmm. and who's left to go well it's one of the weird things it's I think one of the best things to happen to the history plays in the past 10 years is Game of Thrones because before that you know I mean as an again as an ignorant American 15 years ago I didn't know how succession worked 
Like, I don't get, okay, so if the king dies, it goes to his son, right? Okay. What if he doesn't, like, I didn't understand the ins and outs, but now on Game of Thrones, you get to, you see like, oh, well, if you win the war or like if you have this cadet dynasty and like all this stuff. So now I think audiences now, casual audience or more contemporary audiences that aren't, you know, Shakespeare podcasters like us can pick up like, oh, I get it. Richard's like, he needs to get like four people out of the way. I understand now. Um, but I like 15 years ago when I was reading the histories, I had, I didn't get it. I didn't understand the, the chain of events there, but I'm also an idiot. So take that at face value. Um, Otherwise you wouldn't be on this podcast. Well, 15 years ago, I was definitely an idiot. Now I'm maybe idiot. Everybody was an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but no, I haven't seen like the lineup like the family portrait thing, which would be a very effective way. Mm. Well, let me just make a note here. Maybe you'll see that in a seven stages production of Richard III coming up soon. <laughs> let's make a little note over here on the side. Kevin Condardo presents the Kevin Condardo production of Richard III starring and directed by Kevin Condardo. <laughs> I'll pitch that later tonight. Hold that thought. Speaking of productions that just ignore the secondary characters. <laughs> <laughs> you know it. You know me so well. <laughs> uh, so uh what else, what other prologue so, i'm trying to think of other prologue things if you don't have a specific editions i have a question then because i think one of the things structurally that's interesting about richard the third is that he starts the play the first thing that you see is richard talking to the audience and richard car richard deciding how he's going to tell the story how he's going to set things up and that relationship with the audience is something that, you know, is very, very key and crucial to the play. And in both films, you lose that. And they try and compensate in different ways that in the Olivier one, there's that this long prologue where you're seeing what's going on. And then at some point, they've just staged it so that Richard is right in front of the camera and he turns around and like sneers into the camera. <laughs> and you're like, aha, I see you, Richard III. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and in the McKellen one, it's he, he's at the front of the tank and he comes in and shoots and and then they bang on the Richard the Third title in front of him and they're like and that's sort of our intro to him. But in both cases, it takes quite a while before they are actually, you know, talking to the audience. Um, and I wonder the the fact that they had to, that they added on those prologues. How do you feel like that is a problem as far as or how that affects our relationship to to Richard and his narration. Yeah, I mean it's a great it's a great point, but I don't it's one of those weird things where on stage it works so well when you're just sitting in the house and lights go down and then one guy comes limping out and he's like, "Let me tell you what you're about to see." You know, it's just so arresting and so captivating and right away you're like, "I want to know more about this guy." But in film that would be very boring. Right. To just have someone be like uh, Rod Serling walking out there and being like, allow, if you will, that this is going to the House of York, you know. So I think you do need to have something else before. But I mean, it's it's taps into a larger thing that so much of this of Richard III is about his connection with the audience. And it's built into a lot of his monologues where. <laughs> there, there are spots in the text for the audience to be like, oh, I hate you. And he's like, I know, right? But you don't get that on film unless you're at, you know, 
unless you do the um, Rocky Horror Picture Show screening of Richard the <laughs> Third, which I would attend. To be clear, I am available to host, MC, or just buy a ticket to and throw toast at the screen or whatever. I've only but, heard of you, Lady Anne, in this production. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're start, We're already the cast is filling up. Quick, get your uh, get your headshots and resumes in. Uh, but you know, you you are going to lose it just by doing this. But you know, I think it's interesting that both of the Richards kind of discover the audience in that you know, in the McKellen, they split the monologue up in half, so it, half of the monologue is part of an oration like a victory speech and then he's at the urinal going to the bathroom he's in the mirror and then his eyes just kind of drift to the right and he's like oh you're here hello mm-hmm. i'm gonna keep talking to you now and he starts talking to you at home um and in the in the olivier it's the same thing where there's that whole first scene and then the camera comes back in and he's in the throne room and he's like come with me for a second i have to tell you something you know, and there's a weird it felt to me like the Haunted Mansion ride at Disney World for a second where like you're going down the hallway with him and he's like, come with me. And he's walking and you're like going with him and the camera's very like smoothly rotating around to all the different things. And it's like you, you're you're literally along for the ride with him at that point. Uh, and I think that's kind of what it has to be. I don't know how well, else you do it. I mean, I think there's a bunch of other ways you could do it. Um, okay, uh, tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, like, one way is you could have him self-documenting. And, you know, he could be putting himself on camera. and Interesting. Like a real-world type of thing? Like a confessional thing? Well, I mean, I was thinking more like Greg Doran's Hamlet, um, where Hamlet at some point grabs a camera and decides he's going to start documenting, and he gives a couple of his soliloquies into, into lens. That's a really interesting uh, idea. Yeah, but... Part of the point of that whole relate that part of the point of that whole thing is he's talking to someone other than himself, right? If you have himself documenting, there's not that performative element that he wants. Well, the no, feedback. but there is because it's like, well, okay, there isn't the feedback, but it is sort of like, well, I want you to know how clever I was when you know somebody when I'm dead, I want them to know how clever I was. Like literally, Richard, I was joking about the manifesto before, but literally him making like a video manifesto type of thing. Yeah. And I mean, I think there are other ways of of doing it, too. I mean, I don't know. I can't think of them. I, I wouldn't don't have things offhand that I would suggest, but I'm sure there are other ways of doing it. Because I think, um, that the approach in the Olivier and in the rich in the in McKellen are quite different. That what happens in Olivier's film is that Richard is very much taking us by the hand and moving us around. And he mm-hmm. it's always there's a lot of opening of doors and closing of doors, and there's the scenes where everything else is happening, and then he goes somewhere and closes a door, or he waits for somebody to leave the room and closes the door. Right. Or and like then, looks through a window or whatever, yeah. Right. And then he talks to the camera and the camera, the camera doesn't move very much. So the camera is always just there. And then he starts talking into the camera. And then whenever he's explaining things that are happening, he's usually on the outside looking in in some way. Like what you're saying that there, it's very elegantly blocked so that he's next to a window. He looks into the window and behind in the window is the scene going on of what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. And you know, even when they're talk when he's talking to Clarence about how um, no, but neither no one is safe. That the two of them are standing there in a, in the in a doorway, and in the middle 
between the two of them, you can see what's going on in the background, which is the king and and they're looking at the king and implying that, you know, the king is dangerous and the queen is dangerous and they have they're, that they're both unsafe, that we're constantly looking in on looking into what's going on from the outside, from Richard's perspective. And we're always seeing things going on in the background. Mm-hmm. And so it's very much him taking us through the story. And then he takes these moments where he actually talks into the camera. Um, whereas what what happens in McKellen is sort of what you're, you were saying, Kevin, is that it's very much, the camera moves a lot in it. And I think that sometimes the camera moves too much because you're much too aware of it. But one of the things mm. that it allows because the camera is moving a lot is that the camera kind of just finds him <coughs> at the right time. And so it allows him to give these small little asides without having to turn and look into camera. It's just that everything is blocked so that the camera will be right in front of him so he can say, your bedchamber. Yeah, or, exactly. Right. Um, or whatever it is that he's saying that he often has these like one liner asides. Um, right. That he can he just turn to his right and do it and then be right back in the scene. Um, but then there are moments where it's kind of confusing, like when he, after he's um, wooed Lady Anne and he's walking down the hallway of the hospital and there's a camera following him. And it's like, okay, so there's a documentary crew just like following Richard around. Like what is going on? Yeah. What does the camera represent? And I think they get away with this a lot more in the Olivier one because the camera doesn't move a lot. So it doesn't draw attention to itself. So you're not constantly wondering who is the camera? What perspective is it? Who's watching? Who are we meant to be? It's just sort of like, yeah, you feel like you're getting what would be the relationship on stage, but it's on film for the most part. Mm-hmm. And in the in the Ian McKellen one, it's I think it's there's a lot of effective asides to the camera, but I don't I think you lose a lot of the relationship that Richard has with the audience of just being like of the of the performative nature and also just being like, look how clever this is, and then you see what he's doing. And one of the shows that I saw, the Richard III I saw at um, Stratford Festival, they actually had like stages within the stage. It was a long thrust stage, um, long and thin thrust stage. And they had multiple levels on it. And you would see Richard deliberately stepping onto one of the platforms every time he was going to talk to the audience. Hmm. Um, And it was very, I mean, it was subtle, but it was very, like they had very (coughs) pieces where that would happen. And I think one of the things I noticed in the Olivier one is that it's quite similar to the the Globe Twelfth Night in that he was often um, at the bottom right of the frame, um, and then that's when he would turn and look into the camera and say something, or that's when the camera would find him, mm-hmm. just as though he were like it's it's very much designed and blocked as though he were on a proscenium stage, mm-hmm. and that he's like downstage right, and then or sorry, I guess downstage left would look at into the camera and be like, he, he would just happen to be there and then find the camera. And then your relationship to the space and to him was very much as though it were a stage that when he walks in, like back into the frame, it's as though he's walking up stage. Right. And that sometimes that can be kind of clumsy because you're very aware that this is like, he's blocked it like theater, but sometimes it works well just in that, you get those signals that you would get from the stage without it being like, well, this is, they just, without feeling like they just threw it on, on camera. Mm-hmm. Surprising. Absolutely. No one here. I'm going to defend the McKellen. <laughs> so I hadn't really thought about how the Olivier production placed Richard within the frame 
Um, so I am very glad you said that because it sort of, I guess it made me like approve of it a little more, but one of the things, okay, so let's go from the prologue moving forward. While they don't have the prologue entirely spoken directly to the audience, they use the first moments of the prologue and the first moments of the film really effectively to establish something that is very, it's relatively hard to establish. They establish Richard as a military power, right? Mm-hmm. Like he goes in yeah. here, there's, there's that tank business. And then Richard is the guy in the military uniform who is legit able to speak to an entire room full of people about the war. You know, he has the authority to do that. But then you cut to like the most intimate of intimate moments in the bathroom. Nobody talks to anybody in the bathroom. And the way he speaks to you there, it's like he's inviting you into this very private world. And then after he's, I mean, the one that always really gets to me is the way the camera follows him after he's wooed Lady Anne. Because he's speaking directly to you, but he's like shaking all these hands of people in the hospital and touching all these children. And it's clear that no one around him can hear what you are saying, what he is saying. Right. And he knows you and you have a direct line to his thoughts. Mm. And it's like so intimate and so close. And it clearly differentiates your relationship with Richard from Richard's relationship with anyone else Mm -hmm. that like, I felt almost the opposite of what Alex felt, you know? Alex felt very aware of the camera. I felt very close to Richard. Interesting. I I, I side with Alex on this because the question that I that I run into, I know. The question that I, so like just in the reality of the situation, is there not a cameraman trailing him? you know, maybe I'm looking at it too literally, but with film that's kind of what I'm always going to I'm not I'm uh, is there a cameraman trailing him down the hallway that the kids that he's shaking hands with can't see? I don't know. Like at least in the Olivier, when he's talking to the camera, he's by himself or like in the McKellen, when he's having that aside, like maybe lady Anne doesn't hear it, but yeah, it's interesting that that hallway walk down is kind of a big divisive. It's a gigantic, bold choice that they make. Mm -hmm. And it's a really important, like it's a kind of a divide you're going to have a strong opinion on it either way, which means it's a choice that I like, you know, I liked, you know, you have a, you're going to have an opinion on that either way. And I think that's interesting. Also, it leads into one of my favorite lines in the play, which is, I mean, in the prologue, you have just by my shadow in the sun, discount mm-hmm. on my conformity. And then on the staircase, you have just by my shadow as I pause. Mm-hmm. Well, it- <laughs> which ties it. I don't think this is on just to really touch on really briefly how desperately the Olivier Richard really wanted to get that shadow metaphor going. Just <laughs> really important. Yeah. He mentioned shadow twice. So let's linger on those shadows for upwards of 30 <laughs> seconds. Just really? way too much time to a metaphor. That's really unnecessary. Just really not a helpful storytelling piece. Okay, I think it's over the top, but I actually liked the shadows. Uh, I liked the way he follows the shadows down the hallway. I mean, it's it's hokey, but I do kind of like... The one part that I do like is where Richard's shadow sort of like envelopes the king's shadow. And it's though he's 
as well while he's like whispering in his ear to tell him to to get rid of Clarence. Mm-hmm. That I like the way he's his shadow because he's not physically bigger, but his shadow is enveloping the king and is physically bigger. And then you see him at the throne, like whispering into the king's ear. That I thought that was really quite effective. I think it's more of a stage trick than a film trick, which is why it feels really hokey. Mm-hmm. And I think it would have been less. I, well, I don't know. Maybe you couldn't really do that on stage because you couldn't just ha- tell people to look at the shadows. Yeah. Um, there are ways you could do it. But yeah, it's, I and could it, do it like behind a screen. Um, yeah. There's always sort of, you know, that's lights. We can do light stage magic. We can make that happen. But the, the, the problem was that it wasn't so much the idea of a shadow as a metaphor, but just like the 10th time I got it. You know, it was just too, they beat it into the ground. Yeah. And also, in you know, when the movie's running two hours 40, it's like, we do not need a 15 second lingering shot of them walking down the hallway for the eighth time. Like, it's fine. Cut, <laughs> cut, smash cut into something else for the love of God, please. end of this episode of the 21st folio next part of this discussion will be available to download on monday to keep up with the latest episodes subscribe to the 21st folio podcast on itunes for show notes and more information about the podcast please visit seventh-row.com that's s-e-v-e-n-t-h-r-o-w.com dot